talked to my brother Craig, who lives out in California last week, and he said that he went to a gender reveal party for his son and daughter-in-law who were having a baby. Anybody heard about a gender reveal party uh, before? Yeah, that's all the rage, I guess, these days. Now that I know about it, I want to share it with you. Uh, basically, what you do is you have an ultrasound, and the parents aren't told what the gender is, but the tech tells, I guess, a friend or something, and they send out this invitation to family and some close friends, and uh, then what the friend does is makes up some uh, cupcakes, and they put a, a pink jelly bean or a blue jelly bean in it, and then they all partake together, and they find out what the gender is of this child. In this case, uh, it was a boy. So uh, that's a wonderful way to celebrate a life, uh, preborn. No doubt about that, huh? Always new ideas. Well, I tell you what, this morning we are going to be talking about the greatest birth announcement ever. That, of course, of Jesus Christ. And it was sent out more than a thousand years before Jesus Christ's birth. And this is part of a new series that we're embarking upon as we head into the Christmas season entitled, The Great Mystery. What is the great mystery? Well, the great mystery is that God would love us so much that He would send His Son into this world in order to die for us, in order that we might have a relationship with Him. There's a lot of mysteries surrounding Jesus Christ coming in to this world. We we're going to be talking about the mysterious announcement this morning. Next weekend, the mysterious conception. The weekend after that, the mysterious mission. Then on Christmas Eve, the mysterious offer. And friends, this is a wonderful season to invite those people who don't know Jesus to church. As they almost expect an invitation. Christmas Eve is the most attended service uh, during the year. And I really want to encourage you to think and be praying about neighbors, friends, family that you can invite out to any of our services during this season. We have our Christmas Eve services. Uh, let's see, we have Friday at 7 p.m., Saturday at 5 p.m., and then on Christmas Day we're only going to have one service, and that's at 11 a.m., and then on New Year's Day, we're not going to have anything on New Year's Eve, but New Year's Day we're going to have another service at 11 a.m. So we'd love to have you with us, and especially to bring somebody who needs to know Jesus. Let's talk about this mysterious announcement. We're going to look at the life of John the Baptist. Very interesting character. You remember that Mary was pregnant with Jesus, and she went to visit her cousin, Elizabeth was married to Zacharias, and she was pregnant with John the Baptist. And when they met up, John the Baptist leapt within the womb because he was the forerunner of Jesus Christ. He was saying, prepare the way in his ministry. And he was born six months before Jesus Christ, and he went on to live in the desert most of his life. And then he began 
a ministry. He was kind of an odd fellow. He had taken a Nazarite vow, which was a commitment to God, where he wouldn't cut his hair and he would wear camel's hair, drink any alcohol. And he also ate locusts and honey. <clears throat> Try that sometime. Probably at Trader's Joe, you can pick up some locusts, I'm not sure. But John the Baptist uh, was very fervent. Uh, of course, he baptized many people. Uh, the baptism of repentance. And then he also baptized Jesus Christ. And then uh, he was very forthright in confronting people about their sin. So he confronted Herod, Antipas, who was a ruler at that time, when he decided to seduce his brother's wife and take her as his wife after divorcing his current wife. So John the Baptist said, no, 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 no. You don't do that. That doesn't honor God. And Herod threw him in a very gloomy fortress. And he was there for a long time before eventually John the Baptist was beheaded by the wishes of Herod's new wife. Well, let's take a look at uh, what Jesus Christ had to say about John the Baptist. Now, this is God talking here, obviously. He says, I tell you the truth, among those born of women, there has not risen anyone greater than John the Baptist, yet he who is least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than he. Jesus Christ said John the Baptist is the greatest man that ever lived. He's the man who is most devoted to God. He's the man who's living out life as God would desire. That's quite a high compliment, isn't it? John preached on the banks of the Jordan just before Jesus came on the scene. And he had a very fiery message. He wanted people to repent of their sins to prepare their hearts for the gospel. Verse 7, But when he saw many of the Pharisees and Sadducees, those were the teachers, the religious leaders, those people were leading people astray from the truth of Jesus Christ. When he saw them coming, he said, You brood of vipers, a pleasant way to say hello, uh, who warned you to flee from the coming wrath that was coming down on them? His winnowing fork, speaking of Christ, is in his hand, and he will clear the threshing floor, gathering his wheat into the barn and burning up the chaff with unquenchable fire. So here was Jesus Christ with a winnowing fork, where they would take the winnowing fork and uh, put uh, the grain that was covered and they would throw it up in the air and the chaff, uh, the covering of the grain, would blow away in the breeze and the grain that was heavier would fall to the floor. And the chaff was worth nothing. And so he's basically saying, you Pharisees and Sadducees, you're worth nothing. You're to be judged. You're to be burned up. And so he was condemning them. So John's expectation, his vision of what he saw in the Scriptures is that Jesus Christ was coming as a ruler. He was coming as a judge. He was coming to mete out justice, to settle these injustices that had been done by these particular men and others. So he preached up a storm. Well, when Jesus Christ came on the scene, John said, I must 
he must increase, Jesus must increase, and I must decrease. So yeah, we don't read much about him until, of course, we read about him in jail, uh, prison that is, Matthew 11, verses 1 through 3. And after Jesus had finished instructing his twelve disciples, he went on from there to teach and preach in the towns of Galilee. When John heard in prison what Christ was doing, John's disciples, every major teacher had disciples back in that day. So his disciples were following Jesus, reporting back to John exactly what Jesus was doing. So when John heard what was going down from his disciples, he sent his disciples to ask Jesus a specific question, to ask him, are you the one who was to come or should we expect someone else? Now, in the original language, basically he's saying, are you the one? Are you the Messiah? Now, think about that for a second. Here is John the Baptist, okay? He knew about the virgin birth. He was the prophet who said that Jesus Christ was the Messiah. When Jesus Christ, when they met, John said, Behold the Lamb of, the, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. John didn't feel worthy to baptize Jesus Christ, but Jesus insisted upon it. And he baptized Jesus Christ, and John heard from heaven the voice of God saying, Behold, this is my Son, with whom I am well pleased. And then the dove descended from heaven. And John experienced all of this. And now he's sitting in this dungeon. And he's saying, is Christ really the one? And I don't know about you, but that's a real encouragement to me. Because we all go through times in our life when we have doubts about God. We have doubts about what he says in the Word of God. I was just talking with the Wiley family back here. You know, Alice Wiley died uh, this past year. And they just found out that one of their brother's uh, daughters, uh, their niece, was killed in a car accident last night, 26 years old. Melinda, you can be praying for their family as they work through this. But, you know, hey, you know, those type of things happen in your life. And you go, whoa, wait a second, God, are you good? What are you doing? But it, it's reassuring to me that John the Baptist, the greatest man that ever lived, according to Jesus Christ, had doubts. When do we have doubts? We have doubts when things aren't going well. We have doubts when people die. We have doubts when life goes south. And that's where John was, right? Here, here's this free spirit who had lived in the desert, who had proclaimed God's Word, and now he's sitting in a prison. Well, that can bring you down, right? Yeah, when life is not kind to us, uh, we can doubt God's goodness. The biggest challenge John had was his expectations of Jesus Christ. He expected Jesus Christ to be the ultimate judge. But what he heard about Jesus Christ is that he was going around and he was just spreading grace and mercy wherever he went. He was hanging around with sinners, forgiving them, forgiving prostitutes. He was healing people, giving sight to the blind. And 
Again, helping people who are deaf to hear, uh, giving words to the mute, raising people from the dead. I mean, where is the judge here? Okay, where is the vengeance? When is Jesus Christ going to start to do what I, I told everybody he was going to do? And he was confused because when he read the Old Testament or the scriptures, as he would have referred to them, when he read the scriptures. Jesus Christ had come to judge, and he didn't see any of this going on. So he's wondering, was I right? Are you really the one? Well, let's look at some of these uh, prophecies to understand why John might have been confused. There are really two types of prophecies about Christ. They either portray Christ as a glorious king, or they portray Christ, the Messiah, as a suffering servant. So let's study these. Psalm 2.6 is a messianic psalm. I have installed my king on Zion, my holy hill. Now that's a king-oriented Messiah, right? That sounds great. But then Isaiah writes in Isaiah 53.3, He was despised and rejected by men. A man of sorrows and familiar with suffering, like one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised, and we esteemed him not. What's going on with that? <laughs> you know, we got the king up here. Now, a king is not someone who's despised, who's rejected, who's a man of sorrows, who suffers, who people turn away from and have no respect for. What's going on there? I mean, we've got two very different pictures of Jesus Christ. And then we look at Isaiah again, and we see the two mixed together in Isaiah 61, 1 and 2. The Spirit of the Sovereign Lord is on me. So this is a prophecy, and this is Christ speaking, because the Lord has anointed me to preach good news to the poor. Now that would be, of course, the servant. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, again, the suffering servant, to proclaim freedom for the captives and release from darkness for the prisoners. That sounds like a king, right? Coming in and clearing house, uh, again, freeing them from the Romans. To proclaim the year of the Lord's favor and the day of vengeance of our God to comfort all who mourn. Now, that was John's Messiah. The king, the one who is just, vengeance. So, how does a person during that particular day reconcile these two things? They're looking at the Scriptures. The prophets are looking at the Scriptures. And on one hand, you have a glorious king who's coming. On the other hand, you have a suffering servant. Now, if you're going to gravitate toward one or the other, which one do you think you're going to go with? Uh, probably the king, right? <laughs> because uh, the Jews, of course, were persecuted uh, throughout their existence and still are. And uh, they'd be looking for a king to free them, to give them a nation, to give them independence, especially from the Romans in this particular day. So that's where everybody gravitated toward. That's where the disciples gravitated toward. You see, the problem was is that the people 
that were trying to interpret this didn't know that Jesus Christ was coming twice. They didn't know there was a first coming and a second coming. They thought that he was going to get it all done in one coming. <laughs> that wasn't the case. Now, we know that. It's kind of like uh, if you're looking at mountains from a distance. And if you see two mountain tops, and they look like they're right together. And that's how the prophets saw the Messiah. He was a king and a suffering servant. They saw those together, and that was very hard for them to reconcile in their minds. But that's how they saw it. That's what God had told them. Now, if you approach those mountaintops, what you'll find is that there's maybe two or three miles between the mountaintops. And so what we know is that there was a first coming in which Jesus Christ is a suffering servant, and the second coming that we now await, He is going to be the glorious King. So you have those differences. Now, we have the advantage of uh, looking back where they didn't know that. And that's why you had so much confusion between the two. Now, let's look at what uh, John, excuse me, Jesus said to John the Baptist. Uh, he basically replied to these disciples after John's question was given to them. He said, go back and report to John what you hear and see. In fact, if you look in the parallel passage in Luke chapter 7, you'll actually see Jesus Christ doing miracles right in front of John's disciples. I mean, he shows them right there. Here, let me show you a few things. You can tell John about this. <laughs> the blind receive sight. The lame walk. Those who have leprosy are cured. The deaf hear. The dead are raised. And the good news is preached to the poor. Blessed is the man who does not fall away on account of me. Now, why didn't he just say, John, I am the one. I know you're going through a tough time. Uh, I'm, again, doing the work that God has called me to do. Why does he respond in this way? Well, what he's doing is he's quoting Old Testament prophecy. We look at Isaiah 35:5. Then will the eyes of the blind be opened by the Messiah and the ears of the deaf unstopped. So those are two things that he mentioned. Then Psalm 61:1 again. The spirit of the sovereign Lord is on me because the Lord has anointed me to preach good news to the poor. He mentions that as well. So we go back to Matthew chapter 11. Jesus replied, Go back and tell John these things. The blind receive sight. The deaf hear. The good news is preached to the poor. What he's saying is, Go remind John that I am fulfilling some of these prophecies. Go, tell him to go back to the Scriptures and study them once again because I'm doing what the prophecies are predicting that I would do. I'm not all of them yet, but again, I'm making progress. That's so important. It's interesting at the end here. Blessed is a man who does not fall away on the account of me. That's kind of a general rebuke to John saying, John, don't fall away. He didn't say don't doubt. He could understand why John was doubting, but don't fall away. Don't lose faith in me because of this. It's so important for us to understand, and John the Baptist is, is so interesting to study because he's kind of a, a, an illustration of how everybody kind of felt. I mean, look at the disciples. 
You wonder why the disciples were always arguing about who was going to be first and second in the kingdom? Because many times we're thinking, wait a second, I mean, that's like not until Jesus Christ comes back that they're going to be first and second in the kingdom. But no, they were thinking, hey, Jesus Christ is going to be king. I mean, this is going to go down like in a month or so. So I want to make sure that I get the right job. <laughs> that I'm number one or number two. They thought that Jesus Christ was going to be the king. They were so narrow focused, so much in denial. And Jesus Christ kept telling them, I'm going to die. I'm going to die. I'm going to be a suffering servant. They're thinking, no, you're going to be a king. You're going to be a king. You see, they couldn't reconcile the two in their own minds. And the prophets, you can imagine the prophets who are writing these God-inspired thoughts and Words, and they're contradicting themselves. We look at First Peter 1.10. Concerning this salvation, the prophets who spoke of the grace that was to come to you searched intently with the greatest care, trying to find out the time and circumstances to which the Spirit of Christ in them was pointing when He predicted the sufferings of Christ and the glories of that would follow. So here you have the, the prophets who are writing these things down and they're trying to say, how does this go together? They predicted the sufferings of Christ and the glories that would follow. I mean, who's going to come that's going to do both of these things? It just didn't make any sense. Well, we look at Matthew 13, 16 and 17. Jesus Christ was talking to his disciples about the parables. Now, when we look at a parable, sometimes Jesus explained it on the spot, but many times he just gave the parable and then later explained it to the disciples. He kept the true meaning hidden from the crowds. And this is what he says to the disciples. But blessed are your eyes because they see and your ears because they hear. For I tell you the truth. Many prophets and righteous men long to see what you see, but did not see it. And to hear what you hear, but did not hear it. What Jesus Christ was saying is there were precious prophets throughout the Old Testament, like Isaiah, who would write these contradicting prophecies that he's going to be this ruler and he's going to suffer and die. <laughs> they were just so puzzled that they couldn't put it together in their heads. He said, Blessed are you, because you are going to see the big picture. And certainly they didn't see the big picture until after Jesus Christ's resurrection. You remember when Jesus Christ sat down with them and kind of put it all together for them after the resurrection? He kind of said, okay, guys, I'm going to help you understand all this. <laughs> all right? And we, 2,000 years later, have a greater understanding even than the apostles themselves, because we have seen what happened at Pentecost, where the 120 people were filled with the Holy Spirit and they witnessed and 3000 became Christ followers. And here we are today, 3000 years later, millions and millions of people throughout the world worshiping Jesus Christ in churches across the world. That's amazing, isn't it? I don't know about you, but uh, it just fills my heart with joy for so many different reasons as we apply this to our lives. 
Because I think of there were 300 prophecies about Jesus Christ's first coming that were fulfilled a letter. Okay? Fulfilled a letter. Even though, again, they were confusing, that they were fulfilled to the letter in Jesus Christ's life the first time around. And because of that, I can look at all the prophecies about His second coming. And I can say, you know, it's taken so long, 2,000 years, and Christ still hasn't shown up. Well, you look at the Old Testament, right? And it took 1,000 years for Christ to show up after the first prophecy. And I say, okay, if Jesus Christ fulfilled all those prophecies that are found in the Old Testament, and He came the first time, I know He's coming the second time. I know that I can believe, I can put my faith in the promises that are found in this book, that Jesus Christ is going to return again. Amen? Amen. No doubt about it. He's coming back. And especially in the last uh, three or four years in our world, where things have just been uh, filled with uncertainty. And we, we watch the news, and first we're worried about our economy, and then we look at the European market, and who knows what's going to happen there, and then there's riots, and nations are falling, and governments are, <laughs> are a mess, and it, it seems like everything's falling apart. Well, friends, at that moment, you need to remind yourself that Jesus Christ is coming back. All right? We don't like uncertainty. But friends, there's going to be a lot more uncertainty as that day approaches. We don't know the day. We don't know the hour. But I'll tell you, it's getting closer. <laughs> right? Yeah, there's more signs than we've ever seen before in our last generation or so. And we can have that confidence. And we can have the confidence... And this really is really where it comes down to day to day. Now, I think about, okay, the prophecies of Jesus Christ being fulfilled in His first coming. And I have confidence He's coming back again. And I have confidence in this book. I mean, the fact that in the prophecies in the Old Testament, there was such uh, a difference between Jesus Christ the King and Jesus Christ the Suffering Servant. <clears throat> I mean, if somebody just kind of wrote the books of the Bible, tried to trying to create Christianity, which some people argue that was done. They tried to write it in such a way that would kind of set up Jesus Christ and all that kind of stuff. Would they really put that type of contradiction in there, that Jesus Christ is going to be a suffering servant and then a king? No, they wouldn't have. That wouldn't make any sense whatsoever. But the prophets just wrote down what God told them to write down. So even with the contradictions, that gives me the confidence that this book is from God. Nobody could put this book together but God. So when I get up in the morning and I have questions about that day, questions about the future, uncertainties in my life, I can go to this book for confidence, for wisdom, for insight. The Holy Spirit is within me because I'm a Christ follower and God can speak to me through this book, and He can give me the power and the wisdom and the courage to live today. 
and to live tomorrow and the next day until He takes me home. Now, isn't that so encouraging? Amen? Amen. Yes. Yes, let's thank the Lord for that. Yeah, this is so reassuring. No matter what you're going through, you can count on God. And this book tells you about who God is. And that's why you need to get to know this book. That's why you need to embrace it. That's why you need to read it and meditate and memorize it and just let it saturate your life. Just let it be so much a part of your life. Because it's the only thing that's really going to give you comfort. You can watch all the TV you want, all the news you want. You might be entertained, but that's about it. You know, you need what's in this book. Now, let's talk about one other paradox in prophecy. And it's about Jesus Christ being viewed as a stone. Now, many times, you know, we have our manger scenes and little baby Jesus. You know, maybe you could just put a little stone in there this season. And then people can ask you about it. Why do you have a stone in the manger? Well, let me tell you about that. You'll understand it as I talk about this. Uh, you think it's a weird idea, but really, I just thought about that. That'd be an interesting witnessing tool. But uh, Isaiah 8:14. But for both houses of Israel, he will be a stone. That's Jesus Christ, the Messiah, that causes men to stumble, and a rock that makes them fall. And for the people of Jerusalem, he will be a trap and a snare. That sounds like a bad stone to me. Uh, a stone that makes you stumble. Now, I get back in that day, uh, they had a lot of stones. They just had dirt pathways and things like that, except for the Romans and their roads. But, yeah, there were a lot of stones around, so they knew what it meant to stumble over a stone. But it says that this stone is going to help people, or not help people, but it's going to be a trap and a snare. I don't like that stone. But then Isaiah, again, this is what he says in verse 16. So this is what the Sovereign Lord says. See, I lay a stone in Zion, a tested stone. That meant a really nice stone. A precious cornerstone, like they would place the last stone in the building uh, to mark it as a, a fine piece of construction for a sure foundation, not a weak foundation. The one who trusts will never be dismayed. I like that stone. But wait a second, Isaiah. You talked about another type of stone back in Isaiah chapter 8. Now, which stone are you talking about here? They're both the Messiah, but they're really different stones. Well, Psalm 118.22 says, The stone the builders rejected has become the capstone. Now, what was the capstone? Well, if you had an archway... Now, you were building for a building where people would walk under. What they would do is they would have one stone right in the middle, and it would support all the, all the other stones uh, that were part of the archway. So it had to be the most beautiful stone you could find. So the stone that the builders rejected, that the stone that the Israelites rejected, became the capstone. Jesus Christ, the capstone, the corner. Stone. Now, 1 Peter 2, 6-8 puts it all together. For in Scripture it says, See, I lay a stone in Zion, a chosen and precious cornerstone. The one who trusts in Him will never be put to shame. Now, to you who believe, this stone is precious. 
You see, Jesus Christ is precious to those of you who know Him personally. He is your sure foundation, your sure cornerstone to the challenges you go through in life. And He answers the questions about what life is all about. You, you build your life around Jesus. You center your life around Him because He's chosen. He's precious. You can trust in Him. But then it goes on, but to those who do not believe, the stone the builders rejected has become the capstone and a stone that causes men to stumble and a rock that makes them fall. That's the other stone that we were talking about, right? They stumble because they disobey the message, which is also what they were destined for. Here's the point. We got these two different types of stones, but they're the same stone. The paradox here. They're Jesus Christ. The Messiah. And if you choose to embrace a stone, if you choose to put your trust in the stone, it's going to be a wonderful stone in your life. Precious, cornerstone, sure foundation. But if you stumble over the stone, if the stone is something that is an offense to you. Uh, it's going to be, again, a decision you make that will rob you of an eternity with God. You know, it's interesting. Everybody has to deal with Jesus Christ. Everybody has to make a decision about Jesus Christ. Who was Jesus Christ? All the major religions, all the cults, they have something to say about Jesus because you've got to have an opinion about who Jesus is to deal with spirituality and religion. Everybody has an opinion about Jesus. Everybody doesn't have an opinion of other world religious founders, but they have to have an opinion about Jesus because He is what life is all about. And many major religions and cults will say, well, Jesus was a great teacher. Jesus was a great prophet. Jesus was a great moral example. Well, that's not enough. Jesus is more than that. Jesus Christ claimed to be God. And you've got to make a decision. Is He telling the truth or not? Because if He's not, Jesus is a liar. Well, that's not a very good teacher. Somebody who claims to be God. Or He's a lunatic. He's out of His mind. If someone came up to you and said, I'm God... You'd probably try to distance yourself from that person, right? Because they're nuts. They're not God. Well, if Jesus Christ isn't God, he's a lunatic. So he's either got to be a liar, he's got to be a lunatic, or he has to be your Lord. So that's why Jesus Christ is a stumbling block. And so many people are faced with the gospel, and they they know what is asked of them. And that is to embrace Jesus Christ. But they will not do that. They'll step back because that means that they have to humble themselves. That means that they have to come before God and say, I am not worthy to have a relationship with you. I am a sinner and I need what you have. I am broken. And they have to Again, let go of their pride. And pride is the number one thing that keeps people from God. So they're willing to say Jesus is a great teacher, a great prophet, and things of that nature, but they won't call Him God. 
Because if they call Him God, then they have to submit to Him. And that's what it means to become a Christ follower, to realize that I've got nothing. So many people say, oh, I believe in Jesus. I accept Jesus Christ as my Savior. But then they're, they're counting on their good works to get them to heaven. Well, that's not salvation either. Good works don't get you to heaven. It's you just coming without any pride whatsoever. Total humility and saying, God, I need what you have. And if you haven't made that decision, I would encourage you to do that today. What a great way to start out the Christmas season. Just to come to God in prayer and say, Lord, I know I'm a sinner. I know I never can earn my way or earn a relationship with you. I recognize Jesus Christ died for all my sins. He paid the penalty for my sins that I deserved. And I want to embrace that free gift of grace. Make me a child of yours. And you say a simple prayer like that. Our prayer team would love to guide you in that after the service down this hallway in the office area, the reception area. But, but, but please make that decision. Yeah, you need to identify Jesus as God and as your Savior. Now, as we prepare for communion here, I also want to talk to those of you who have been in rebellion against God. Some of you have hard hearts today. And you're Christ follower and you come to church and things like that, but when it comes to your life, you're living for yourself. You're doing things your own way. You're caught in a sinful pattern, a habit. Uh, you're in a relationship you know you shouldn't be a part of. Uh, you're doing things you know you shouldn't do. And, and you just say, well, whatever. I'm just going to continue to do this. Well, I tell you what. you got to stop. And you know you're ready when the Holy Spirit's really putting the pressure on you. Some of you are just kind of like, oh, you know, the Spirit's moving in on you right now. And He's saying, repent. Repent. Get right with Jesus because that's the only way to live. Satan's selling you a lie. Come on, guys. Come on. Give this gift to God this Christmas. You know, repent and get back in line with Christ in submission to Him and His Lordship in your life. There's others of you who are just drifting. You're just kind of going along and busyness of life and things like that. And Jesus Christ really isn't at the center. You've got a lot of the things that are bringing you satisfaction and you don't spend time with Him. Uh, he really isn't much of a consideration in much of what you do. And it's not like you're in outward rebellion or you've got some big sin going on. You're just you're distracted. And I would challenge you Make Jesus Christ a focus. Repent of your distraction. The distractions in your life. The things that you are treasuring more than Jesus Christ as we prepare our hearts again for communion. Because that's the only way to live. Is to live in submission to His Lordship. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, I want to thank You for the time that You've given us this morning to reflect on the birth announcement of Your Son. and want to thank You for all the things that we learn and gain from this. And I ask, Lord, that You would work in the hearts of my friends here. Lord, if they're in rebellion against You, I pray that You would uh, just give them the power to repent today. If they're distracted, I pray that they would repent of uh, the things that they have chosen to distract them. 
and make you the center of their lives again. Lord, for those who don't know you, I pray that they would make that decision today to follow you as their Lord and Savior and guide us as we uh, spend this time of remembering you in communion. In Christ's name, amen.